0: Welcome ladies and gentlemen to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Franci, and I'm the CEO and managing partner of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, a husband, recently a grandfather. Now, along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've achieved by continuing to elevate in living a fulfilled life by making a positive difference in my world. I'm going to invite you to join me as I delve into the details of the many wins of my guests in achieving their goals, along with, shall we say, the frustrations of the occasional teal gone wrong, because my guests are here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them in business and investing in real estate from the life they're now able to live to the person they've become along the way as they pursued their dreams and having the freedom they've gained by building a sustainable financial future for them and their family. Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Before I introduce my guest, I'll begin by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to encourage you to continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at ceo at raincanada.com. That is ceo at raincanada.com. And if you're inclined, I'd very much appreciate it if you were to share this show with your friends, your family, other people you know. How about even some people you don't know? Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow us on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thank you again for the feedback you provide the team and I. It is definitely appreciated. When it comes to education and learning for creating financial certainty, I tend to believe the best place to start is when we are children. And short of that, perhaps the next best place to start could be collectively learning with our children. I first got to know my guest, Nancy Phillips, when she hosted and presented a number of breakout sessions for our RAIM members' children during our ACRE events. And I can assure you that she has much to share as the expert she is on the subject of financial learning and literacy for children and for parents. Nancy Phillips holds an Honours Bachelor of Science and an MBA For 25 years, Nancy Phillips enjoyed the highest degree of success working in the sports medicine and international corporate medical world. But after a series of life-altering events, including a motorcycle accident, it left her questioning almost every aspect of her life, not the least of which was, what exactly did she need to teach her children for them to lead meaningful, happy, and successful lives? Out of that question was born her passion, her creativity, and the business, The Well Away, where she is now a financial health author, a speaker, and Nancy has created a unique and incredibly comprehensive and simple program, a financial learning system, if you will, that combines personal values and success concepts with basic financial skills. She's combined her global research, her personal experience, and her desire for simplicity and relevance to develop these truly effective methods to help people create a life of meaning and financial well-being. With a high focus on children, the Zella Wella Kids financial storybooks are just one example of effectiveness as they've been successfully piloted with over 1,900 elementary school children. But having said that, the Wella Way resources are for both adults and youth. The Well-Away programs have been successfully reviewed by the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, the FINRA, and are used internationally by families and financial professionals with their clients. Her work has been featured on ABC News, CBC News, CNN, and other media outlets. And I just know you're going to be glad you join me to listen in on this fascinating money conversation with Nancy Phillips. Please join me as I have a conversation about... Money, Nancy Phillips. Welcome to the Everyday Millionaire podcast. So happy to have you on the show. It took take, uh, it's taken some time for us to uh, make this all happen, but man, am I happy to have you here! So welcome.
1: Thank you, Patrick. I'm very happy to be here.
0: So, Nancy, some of the listeners are Rain members, and they may be familiar with you because. We've done some programs with you in uh, at our ACRE events with uh, financial education for kids. We'll call it that for now, and I'm sure you'll find a way better to, way to say that. And so right out of the gate, Nancy, uh, I always like to ask my guests, their what's their elevator pitch? So if somebody walks up and says, so, Nancy, nice to meet you. What do you do? Not to put you on the spot, but do you have a, an answer for that question, Nancy?
1: Absolutely. Well, I research and create financial life skills resources that are for not only kids, but also teens, young adults, and parents, because uh, I desperately needed them. And I thought I'd be able to go out and get those resources. And when I went out to buy them, they didn't exist. So that went a little past the elevator pitch, but that kind of gave you the what I do and why I ended up doing it.
0: (laughs) Well, so tell me a little bit more about, you know, when we, the, the, conversation or the concept of education in the financial world particularly for children kids or very young adults even is a is such a big gap in this world so tell me about what what is it that you do in that world that expands on that conversation so around financial literacy and understanding for young people
1: absolutely there's there's a number of gaps that exist actually because not only is there a gap in the the knowledge being taught there's really a gap in or there was a gap in this sort of the step by step process or journey that you need to take because you don't just learn all your life skills for any topic, including financial all in one go in an eight hour course. It's, it's very progressive, like learning a sport. So there's building blocks and really that, that whole, I would, I would call it a processor system, really doesn't exist in any education system in the world right now, although there's several countries trying very hard to get it in. So you've got that missing. You've got the fact that it's not taught in most schools. And the hugest gap of all is that parents, most parents know they need to be teaching it, but they really don't know where to begin. And it's a topic many people are not comfortable discussing. So you've got some pretty major gaps all adding together to cause a pretty catastrophic situation right now in our society.
0: So when you talk about a catastrophic situation, I mean, that's a big, that's a pretty bold statement. What do you mean by catastrophic in, in from your view of the world? Cause you're in it. I mean, gosh, you're talking to parents and kids on a daily basis, almost you're speaking across the country and, and I believe even, you know, across North America, but tell me a little bit about what does catastrophic mean?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, your, your money decisions and your finances really affect every part of your life. And when you look at the statistics to do with things like uh, marriage and divorce, money's usually listed as number one or two as a main reason for those, those breakups, that's automatically going to affect the children. So you've got people growing up that may have some pretty upsetting uh, belief systems around money and they also, will develop illnesses and physical uh, challenges. So, right now in the United States, one tenth of the US population is on antidepressants and antipsychotic drugs, uh, psychiatric drugs and when you look at the statistics for personal debt and challenges financially along with uh, happiness or illness and the skyrocketing of both in the last several decades really al- although it might not be a direct line you look at the different things to do with mental and physical well-being uh, marriages careers uh, ability to have housing it, it's it's all very closely interlinked and i mean one of the main things that really progressed me to do this for more than just my own children was the fact that I found out in several different books and so forth that, you know, literally teenagers and 20 somethings were committing suicide because they had created so much credit card debt. They didn't know how to get out of it. And they didn't realize there was choices or things they could do to help them. So when I was reading some of those letters written, either you know the suicide notes or the letters to the parents or from the parents in regards to this situation, I thought, well, this is, this is absolutely tragic and it's totally preventable if we provide the skills that young people need to know what habits they need to create to have a good financial life. And, and not just financial, but everything, their health, their well-being, their mental outlook. So I would call that part of the catastrophic side of it is the mental and physical well-being. And then something that's really shocking that I found out just in the last year is that there was several studies done by pediatric um, specialists looking at the... Oh, it's just... It's incredible when you think about it. Looking at the non-accidental head traumas to young children in the year... Two years after the 2008 recession. And what they found was that head injuries sometimes causing death to young children due to domestic violence increased in some cases 180%. And they actually stated at the bottom of the, the medical studies that in times of severe economic stress, pr- protection needs to be considered for these, these young um, citizens. And yet, you know, how on earth are we going to protect babies in their own home? So there's some pretty serious things going on.
0: Wow. It's almost frightening as you describe that, Nancy. It's, uh, you know, it's a, it's such a powerful message, you know, that, and we have to, I guess, consider the fact that if if children are think about the, the stress that they're feeling now, based on the conversation we just had, or the, the statements that you just made. And on top of that, you've got uh, obviously some parents who aren't equipped. So they don't, you know, as, as much as parents aren't communicating with children, I guess the gap really is, is a cycle repeating itself. Because if you've got parents who are not equipped themselves, I mean, what do they even have the ability or competence to support their children in their own learning, let alone the communication that it takes and and the skill set that you can to communicate with children in a way that they can hear it and not be frightened by it. And so it is very complex, isn't it? But it's such an incredibly important conversation. So Tell me a little bit, let's go back and I want to talk a lot more about this because I've been so looking forward to this conversation, by the way, and and uh, there's so much to talk about uh, because I'm 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 pretty fired up about the education, financial education of children. And and because we've worked with you in the past, um, I really want to have some meaningful conversation for the listeners to, to not give them food for thought, but even give them some things that they were going to want to take action on in having these conversations. So take me back. You're a mom. Uh, you, you at some point said, holy cow, my kids don't know anything and, and I got to be able to communicate with them. Or what was it for you? What, what fired you up to even go down this path of education, financial education for children or for people in general?
1: Well, it was a combination of some pretty big factors, Um, life changes really. So I had left the corporate world in the United States uh, to move back to Canada. Uh, My kids were three uh, years old and three months old. And I moved back and uh, within one year, Basically, my life completely changed. So not only did I no longer work in my corporate career, but I went through a severe injury uh, and was booked for spinal cord surgery. And I went through a separation. And um, eight weeks later, uh, the 2008 recession hit. So in a matter of one year, basically everything in my life changed uh, very significantly. My financial situation, my health situation, uh, the economy. I moved from a major U.S. city city with a huge economy to a very small Canadian city to be closer to my parents and family. And um, so I really had to um, figure out how I was going to survive and help my kids not only survive, but thrive in life, uh, in the ups and the downs, because that was definitely a down period that I had never come close to experiencing before. And I really had to figure it out quickly. So that was all happening. Not too long later, um, my daughter was going to be going into kindergarten. And I found out that the education system still doesn't teach you life skills. It doesn't teach you how to think effectively and make good decisions. It doesn't teach you how to set good goals for your own personal values, not what the media is telling you to do or your peers are telling you to do, but what's right for you to create a a meaningful life, to contribute back and so forth. And so when I I saw this and I was like, I, I can't believe they're still not teaching you what you need to know to create a fantastic, extraordinary life. And so that really, it was all that combination of factors of, I'm going to get through this and I'm going to make sure that I do what I need to do to be strong and help my children lead a good life or figure out how to lead a good life. But then at the same time, when I started the research and I started finding out how young kids develop their beliefs, not only about their own world and their parents and their um, personality, but also their money beliefs, it's really cemented in, and there's a lot of research behind this, that it's by the age of seven. So once I found that out, I knew I needed to start creating the, the steps and figure out the gold nuggets to start sharing And I guess a big part of me was just that I felt like it was so challenging. Um, There's so many families that are going through the challenges of separation and divorce. But of course, we still all want our kids to have a fantastic family life and, and live a full life to their potential. And so I wanted to try to help create information and resources and share things with them that would allow for that despite the challenging circumstances.
0: So Nancy, I'm going to uh, I'm probably going to drive you a little crazy on this because, you know, as a as a having done many interviews with high achievers like yourself, I can't help but note that you share in your story, oh, I went through a divorce, I had a spinal cord injury and, you know, whatever else was on, oh, and I moved from a major corporation major city to a small town in Canada. So you you know you stepped over that, like, oh, that's that's just something that happened. And then I moved forward really quickly. And I think that really the 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 meat on the bone for these kinds of conversations in in the context of this podcast is around seemingly ordinary people achieving extraordinary results. I don't want to step over that. So I want to go back and I want you to was the the spinal cord or the back injury, spinal cord injury, I think, is what you said, is that back injury, whatever it was. Was that a, a trauma? Was that what happened? What? How did you? How did you have the injury? Well, tell me a little bit about that.
1: Sure, absolutely. So the initial main. Um cause occurred when i was 18 from a motorcycle accident in the rocky mountains um i was thrown from a motorcycle i was the passenger and i uh, landed hanging over a cliff so my upper body was hanging off the cliff and i could see the river below and that moment definitely changed my life actually it was flying through the air that changed my life because i had a conversation it all slowed down of course like it often does And in the conversation that I could hear, it said, oh my gosh, I can't die now. What about my family? And what about all the people I'm supposed to help? And then I landed, rolled and rolled and rolled and landed hanging over the cliff. And um, people came along, picked me up, put myself and the driver of the motorcycle in the back of their van and drove us to the Banff hospital and i spent a couple of years going through back therapy and treatments and obviously had to have all the road rash scrubbed with a brush to get all the stones out initially which was absolutely crazy but um i got through that and that more or less ended my competitive athletic life but it allowed me to completely change my outlook and that i'd always been a happy person who appreciated life but that changed it too there's a reason I'm alive. There's a reason I survived that. And I'm meant to make a big difference. And I'm meant to help a lot of people. And so I've constantly been searching for how that's meant to happen. And because I was very involved in science and, and sports medicine and so forth, I assumed it would always be through helping patients. That's why I took kinesiology. I worked in sports med clinics. I eventually worked in the corporate world to help develop medical products, orthopedic products with surgeons and engineers. And so that's how I thought it was all meant to happen. But I, I knew uh, during that, that time in the U.S. that that wasn't all there was. There, there was more. There was supposed to be more, more people that, that I could help somehow. I didn't know how. And so to go to the injury that, that occurred 10 years ago, so I had given birth to my second baby, and we moved from the U.S. when he was 12 weeks old, we got here and we ended up in a three-story house and I was wanting to get unpacked and get settled because I had two little kids to take care of. And, and, um, I was carrying, um, uh, boxes quite a bit up and down the stairs trying to get things done. And I, I, basically, um, blew a disc in my back and it shot, shot out basically and sat right on the sciatic nerve, which is the huge nerve that runs down your leg. So, uh, that, that was what happened acutely, uh, 10 years ago.
0: So those that was a that was literally a you know a tipping point or a fork in the road for you. And during that time, were you what you you mentioned something about athleticism or you were an athlete? Were you doing a you said a competitive? Were you doing competitive sports back then or a competitive sport prior to the injury? I guess prior to the motorcycle accident. Yeah.
1: In high school, I actually ended up competing Um, in, it, it was kind of, it, it's not the way I would have planned it, but I ended up competing actually in five different sports in high school and won Toronto championships in five sports. I had been kind of at a club level in gymnastics and tennis, but then when I went to high school, the high school coaches were, you know, of course they want to win city championships, so they recruit. So then I got very aggressively recruited for other sports too, so I ended up playing five sports that we won the championships in. And, um, I hadn't really decided which one I was going to go forward with in university or scholarship or whatever. And then I didn't really get the choice after that because of the motorcycle accident.
0: So when you went to the U S after you recovered to the degree you covered, it took a couple of years to kind of get you back up and you feeling like you're, so you're walking, talking, doing all the things that you're doing and you can be some level of active again. Um, mm-hmm. you went to the U S and What were you doing in the U.S. in the corporate world at that time?
1: So in the corporate world, well, I was in the orthopedic side of things, worked for a very large orthopedics company. And uh, generally, I I was in business development and global product management and so forth. So really working to bring new products to market to help people. So the surgeons would quite often say, OK, I have a lot of patients going through this. We need to develop something to help help these patients. And so we would continually be testing ideas, creating concepts, um, creating the product to try on different patients. And then eventually if it was working and it made sense and we could create it in a good, effective way that people could actually use, then we would bring it to market and, and, uh, and help those patients.
0: So you're, you're going through this traumatic time 10 years ago. So is, th- is that about the time that you went through the separation slash divorce with your husband? And yes. so you're dealing with the pain of that, the pain, the physical pain, the, the move, all of the things that are going on, frightening time. and Very. And uncertain times, I'm sure. When you look back on that, because in my observation, my own, my own experience, but certainly in my observation of others is that we can look back sometimes on that and go, we, I had to do that to be where I am today. You know, I had to have all that learning and, you know, the mental fortitude to get through it, the emotional fortitude, I had to create relationships, whatever it was to get through it. When you look back at the time, do you see, you know, now 10 years later, or whatever it's been 12 years later, do you see where you, that was all kind of meant to be, or do you, do you, can you visit that and see where it makes sense now?
1: I absolutely can. Uh, I have to say it was incredibly painful. Um, But because of the, the challenges, for me, I had always used exercise to help me through stressful times. And because I couldn't really walk, I couldn't travel because I couldn't sit in a vehicle, couldn't do the normal things that I did to relieve stress. And so I began to just delve into the research and the writing and that really saved me but also I look back and I I think okay I have so much empathy for people every everyone goes through things and yet in general there's so little compassion and empathy taught in our society now and so I have such a heightened uh, awareness for that and also I look back and I think I should have forgiven myself so much sooner. I was so hard on myself. I would never have been that hard on a friend or or a stranger. And yet I couldn't forgive myself because I had worked so hard for all the years and accomplished so many things in a row. And then I felt like I was in the negative zone. I wasn't even, like, I wasn't anywhere. It's like, how, how could I have done 20 years of work and end up here? Um, so I think that in general, we're... We're very hard on ourselves. And if we can forgive and say, okay, you know what? I made a lot of mistakes here, or maybe I didn't, you know, what did I do that was so bad? (laughs) Um, But there's people have gone through tough times before. I can certainly figure this out and, 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 and look and, and look for the answers. And so I think that's a huge part in having developed the, the resources that I've developed is because I, I do feel for everyone who's having challenges figuring out what's the next step. And I want to try to bring, you know, a simple answer to that and, and help no matter what stage they're at in their lives, because we're, we're not being taught how to create habits that teach you how to think positively and move forward. We're so busy thinking negative thoughts and that's pushed at us so much in the media that this information needs to be shared. And uh, if if I can, like, I already know I've helped save a couple of lives and, and that in itself is enough, right? That's, it's one life at a time, like Anthony Robbins says. But if we can change hundreds of thousands or millions of lives, then why not do that too, if the information is powerful enough?
0: You know, you make such a great point on so many fronts in that, you know, certainly compassion and empathy for people in general is sometimes, you know you have a perspective that many don't have because you've been through some really tough times like to an extreme and and what we hold as as a tough time because of course you know it's the old story you know you know i once uh, met a man with no shoes and you know and, and whatever that is and then and then i met somebody with no feet right so it's it's there's always another but when we actually have something happen in our life that is a wake up call or a, a a bit of a an awakening for us Man, compassion and empathy comes far easier than when there's not a relatedness to it, and uh, so I, I hear exactly what you're saying, and and you make a really good point. Is, I mean, even the fact that you're having a conversation that you're having to forgive yourself, just in that the mental and emotional uh, self-talk or the the game we play with ourselves, we're so hard on ourselves. Often, many people are so hard on themselves, and you know, what are you really giving for having to forgive yourself for? you're being human, you're doing the best you can, yet, you know, you have an accident, you go through a divorce, you have to go through what you go through to move back to Canada for all the reasons you're doing it. You're doing the best you can always. So it's just so interesting. Now, when you came into the, the world of, you know, the realization that you want to support your children uh, around their understanding and the research that you did during that time, were you yourself, did you yourself have a good handle on your financial kind of being and the communication with your kids? Or were you actually having to commit to educating yourself on on the financial pictures of your life or the final financial plans for your life now that you were a single mother? And then how do I communicate that in the best way with my children?
1: Great question. So I had... Um Because of going to university for a a number of years, I did six years of university and paid some pretty hefty um, school fees and so forth. I had been a pretty planned and um, step-by-step type person when it came to financial management. I was pretty organized. I knew it was up to me to do it. So it wasn't like I was, you know, being handed hundreds of thousands of dollars to pay for school or pay for anything. So it was very, very much an independent type journey. And so I'd organized things. I, you know, lived a pretty modest life. Wasn't a huge spender, liked nice things, had, 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 done some nice travel and, 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 things like that, but was cognizant of not overspending and, you know, making sure to save for, for the, you know, retirement. I had sort of set all that up when I was 21, because I had met a young woman who, uh, was three years older than I was at the time, right when I graduated university and boy, was it faithful that I met her. She changed my life in one conversation and so she had just bought a house and she was in her early twenties and this is in Toronto. And I guess maybe because she wasn't an older man who seemed wealthy, I, I, I just directly said to her, how on earth did you buy a house? <laughs> and, and she said, well, I, uh, she didn't go to university, but she said, soon as I started working after high school, I put 30% of my paycheck away in a separate account and never touched it. And when I had enough, I got the deposit for this house. And I thought that was brilliant. So I thought, okay, well, I want to save for retirement. I want to save for a house. I need to pay off my loans. So I need a an account to do that. I want to travel to Australia and I want to um, put some money aside for giving, giving back to foundations. So I opened five accounts and I started doing all of that. And by before I hit 30, I had bought my first place. At that time, it was in Vancouver, went to Australia for a month, did all these things. And it was purely by dividing up the money. That was the key is to not have it all in the checking account. So little did I know until I started my research 10 years ago, that that's generally the difference between high net worth people and, and people who don't have any assets is they have different purposes for their money. And so that was a beautiful lesson. I teach that now through to youth, through what I call the GIST method, which stands for give, invest, invest, save and spend. So you make sure to separate separate out your investing money from your saving because those material items are what can really, really, um, cause damage in a person's financial life. Now there's so much push for consumerism and materialism. So really that was that was what led me up to to the point of moving back. But then of course when I left my corporate career and had no income, I just came to a new country and had no health insurance because I hadn't been here long enough. And came back to my own country, but still, you know, that was different. And then the recession hitting decreasing real estate values, like everything hit at once. So uh, where things were looking like they were going pretty good. All of a sudden it was boom. Okay. Incomes changed, marital status has changed everything. So of course there was major challenges and and worry and fear.
0: So did you see um, this financial education of kids? So let's get a little bit off track for a minute uh, and I'll come sure. back to your story. I want to do that. What is the Wella way? What is that?
1: So it's a philosophy now. It's been created over the years where wella is the root of the word wealth, old English word, and wella actually means well-being. So it's worked out perfectly in that it's developed over time. It's not something that just came into my head the first day I started doing this. But this, everything that I write and everything that I research it's not about money it's about life and it's about well-being cuz that's what wealth really is and if you don't have your health and you don't have happiness and and love and people you care about then the money just it's not enough to make you happy we all know that so the well away is really all about bringing together information and sharing it in a way that people can create really abundant extraordinary lives that are they they have meaning. They're happy. They're going to be happy at the end of their life. They're not going to have regrets.
0: Love that. That's, but, and there's so much in even what you just said there it, around money and what, what so many unfortunately believe that money will in fact give them that satisfaction, that happiness when, as we, we as you just stated, it, that's just not the case. And once again, I'm jumping around a little bit because I want to, and I'll put all the pieces together as we go forward, Nancy, but so taking me back, you're, you've done the research, you see the gap, you've had the experiences you've had. When did the education part of it become a business plan for you? Because I mean, that's really, you went from corporate world to single mom living in Canada, and now you're stepping into a world of being an entrepreneur in having that, entrepreneurial kind of pull you know at a time when the economy's all over the map and we're not sure even what's happening so tell me a little bit about how, where did where did you get that entrepreneurial pull was it a case of just i need to survive i need to figure out how to make money and i want to do it in a way that is having an impact give me a little bit of your thought process around that decision making uh in terms of the the development of your business plan or your thoughts around it
1: Sure, it you know it really stemmed from both the idea of I want to, this can't continue. I was just so adamant that this this lack of sharing of information that's so life altering it cannot continue for generations to come. It's just it's it's basically criminal, really, when you're teaching kids so much of information they that's obsolete, and then on the other hand, the things they need to actually really be able to create. Um, you know, a happy marriage, a happy family life, raise their kids in a, in a, in a great way. So they can be independent and not dependent on the parents, all of these different things, the skills that are required for that are not being taught. So it came from just a pure, almost like I'd have to call it passion, but it was almost really anger because, you know, there's so many corporations out there that have so much money and so much knowledge about how to sell things that aren't necessarily good for us. There's lots of good things too. But if there's all this knowledge out there and all this this um, funding, why can't some of it be allocated to actually helping people learn what they need to learn? It's just not right. The, the The courses for creating a positive life shouldn't just be for people who can afford an executive course. It's not, that was what really hit me was I heard some brilliant speakers in my 20s But if I hadn't been in the corporate world, I never would have heard them. And the first time I heard Brian Tracy speak and I was 24, I thought, why didn't I hear this stuff when I was 12 or 13, when I was trying to decide what to do with my life? It would have changed everything. And so I want to bring that kind of valuable information to kids. So bring that together with, okay, if I create books and and I speak and I create online programs and and figure out different ways to get to different people, hopefully we can hit the masses in a way that there'll be a tipping point where this topic can finally be discussed, and that no one is left out in the sense that the the socioeconomics of this is that The highly affluent families need this information for their children just as much as the areas uh, and cities where the kids are really challenged and the parents are challenged socioeconomically because so much of it is based on how you think and what you believe and then creating habits that will set you up for financial success. And so those things are really critical. It's not about being a math wizard or an investment wizard, as you well know it's much more fundamental, but those critical concepts are not getting to the people who need them.
0: Why do you think that financial education isn't taught in schools? I mean, Robert Kiyosaki, I mean, gosh, for years, he's said he's, I think he works, you know, he's done some uh, rich dad, poor dad for kids or whatever Robert Kiyosaki has done. But I mean, I remember back when I first read rich, the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, he talked about the lack of education in our schools. And now that you've been playing the game for as long as you have, and and doing what you've been doing, do you have an answer to why that is? Why isn't our education system providing at least the fundamentals uh, around finance with the kids in school today? I, I don't, and I'm and I'm asking because I really look at it and scratch my head and go, I I don't get it. So, do you have insights into that?
1: I sure do. Yes, absolutely. Uh, there's there's quite a few factors that are all quite major contributors to the situation one is that in most countries the curriculums already feel extraordinarily full to the teachers they already feel and and they do have a very full curriculum so to squeeze another major topic in seems overwhelming and you know the reality is that there has to be a major shift some of the stuff that's obsolete that we're not raising factory workers anymore the you know the prussian hundred-year-old 150-year-old system needs to go We need to create kids who have the ability to look for solutions, who are creative, who notice trends, like they have to be forward thinking. And so there has to be that shift in curriculum. Some places are really working hard to do that. BC is working hard to do that. So you've got the curriculum, which is, you know, it's been going on for decades. That's what the teachers are used to. Teachers in general are not super comfortable with the idea of teaching this topic. I've spoken in front of quite a lot of teachers as well. Some are okay with it, but most are not super comfortable. Then you've got the fact that education systems are fractured in most countries. So whether you've got provincial or state um, education systems, most countries it's geographical and there's no one national program. There's a few smaller countries like that. But again, to try to get one consistent system across all kids in all age groups doesn't exist. And then it goes back to what I was looking for when I wanted to go out and purchase a program is I wanted a step-by-step, tell me what to do at what age or not necessarily what age, but what knowledge and experience level, what do I teach? And that hasn't really existed either conclusively, especially bringing in the human side. You've, You've got different school districts and areas who have set, because I've read hundreds of them, they've set curriculum. I had them laying all over my, I had to go into the basement. I had so many of them laying out when I was doing my initial research. But they they have the subject matter laid out purely Left brain, purely financial, logistical. They're not taking any any account into the fact that we're human and emotional, and most of our financial decisions are made emotionally and then justified logically. And I can explain why that happens because now the brain research has made it very clear why that happens. So those are some of the big challenges: is what exactly do we teach and at what level so that the behaviors actually change? They don't just hear the information and then forget about it and never apply it because that's not going to do any good. We, we can't just tell them to do a budget and say, okay, we told them to do a budget. They should be good for the rest of their life. It's not how it works. You have to create a habit, then build progressively on that habit and so forth. And that just doesn't exist right now. So there's four or five really major factors in, that, in the answer to that question.
0: So when you are working with the parents of children because you've got two aspects to this. You're having to, I mean, and I know it goes beyond even that, but you're you've got children to educate in terms of how to, you've got parents to educate on in terms of how to. You're talking about financial institutes and and different corporations that you provide education to. Then there's the conversation of communication in a family environment where do you find that you have to get mom and dad on the same page before they can even have the conversation with the kids because I know that in the world of rain for example where we are education coaching people all the time how to invest in real estate it's not uncommon to have huge differentiation in or differences in opinion and values and so I'm I've had many many probably hundreds of conversations over the past 15 years plus with people that are saying my husband or my, let's just put it this way, my significant other, whether it be husband or wife is not on the same page. They've had some story around money. They've had some story around investing, even in the conflict of a couple that is trying to create a financial future. How do they even communicate that with their children? Do you follow that? I mean, gosh, there's a breakdown at that point. And even if as a couple, they're on the same page, do they have the ability to communicate it in a way? So, I guess, you know, in, in this conversation, if you were to, given the listeners that are, that listen to this particular podcast, what is some of the information that you want to give them as listeners in, in terms of communication around with their kids, with their significant others, their belief systems around money, perhaps? I mean, there's lots of directions we could go with the conversation, but let's just start with the education of parents versus the education of kids and bringing that together. Is that what your program does, for example?
1: Yes, and that's where it really helps parents try to you know, get on that same page because there are fundamental skills, very, very simple skills that you can teach your children to really help them get off to a great financial start. But the parents need to agree on certain, I guess, premises or or beginning points, which is that, you know, we don't buy them every single thing that that they want. You know, it's not Christmas all year round because creating an attitude of entitlement is, is devastating for a child once they become an adult because they don't have the work ethic or the resiliency or even the attitude of well you know i should work to get this and i can work to get this it, it really puts them at a major disadvantage and there's a lot of a lot of research scientifically around that dr breda hoft is the leader in that area of the attitude of entitlement and how damaging that is so getting the parents to have common ground is a big part of what the storybooks do for parents with young children because it gives them some of the most important topics like needs versus wants or the GIST method, dividing up the money. And it starts to give them a few really critical topics around which they can start to build their child's financial future. But it also, like with the GIST method, as the child divides up any income they have, whether it's from chores or allowance, they begin to think about their own goals, not, not what the parents are telling them, but what they're thinking of. So what charitable organization would they like to help? Maybe they like animals, so they help the SPCA. So it starts to create independent thinking, critical decision-making, all of these things that they need to develop to be successful and independent. And it gives the parents a structure to say, okay, I know this is a good thing for my kids to, to, to learn, But it is important for the the parents to have some discussions over really basic things such as, you know, I really believe our kids should learn to save their own money. They they shouldn't be given everything they want. They need to learn the value of a dollar or else they're not going to treat their they valuables very well. You know, if it's sports equipment or whatever it is, they're not going to have the same respect if, it's, if the money is not eventually going through their own hands. It, it, it has to. You hear the horror stories about kids going off to college with a credit card. There was actually a girl standing in front of me a few months ago. I rarely go to Sephora about once a year to pick up a couple of things, uh, makeup-y type things, cream and so forth. And she walked up to the cashier and the cashier said, oh, we can only only take debit at this cash register. And the girl looked at her card and she's like, oh, I don't know which one this is. Um, Let's try it out. So, you know, college student, clearly probably 21 years old. She didn't even know if she had a credit card or a debit card. So clearly the spending of money was not a big deal to her. It wasn't coming out of her account. It was, it was, she said it was her dad's. So just allowing them the opportunity to learn is critical. And that's something that parents can talk about uh, as a result of the resources, helping them, you know, look at what topics are most important to cover.
0: Is there you know are there some commonalities so you know when we go back to talking about managing money and and entitlement and and what you just shared about the difference between a credit card and a debit card you know first off is there a common i guess theme that you teach which is to live beneath or below your means do you come back to that uh, kind of a foundational thing or is there a common anchor that you get to people to say okay here's what here's some of the things you got to watch for number 1 don't buy your kids all everything that they want Secondly, live below your means. Make sure that you've got a bucket over here called this is, you know, uh, for future savings. This is for vacations. This is for whatever. Do you, you break it down that way? Is there a common thread, I guess, or a common theme or a common challenge, I guess, is what I'm really looking for that you see with couples that you are, are talking to and speaking with before they even get into the education of their children?
1: Well, you know, the common theme (laughs) The common theme is that couples quite often almost, it's more common than uncommon, have different family money wiring belief systems, right? So the family money wiring goes back to that early childhood programming. We were talking about that, that- occurs during the formative years. So one person may be very fearful about um, spending money and they can that can actually come, come out in their financial habits in two ways. They may be fearful about ending up as a bag lady. I mean there's some very very successful wealthy women out there who all have the fear of being a bag lady eventually. It's quite common in our society. So fear can be expressed as either okay, I've got money now, so I'm going to spend it because I, I may not have it in the future. So they may end up as hoarders or they may not spend anything and live way below their means and and not even buy healthy fresh berries because they feel they only deserve canned food because they're so fearful. So So the money wiring can come out in really interesting ways, but quite often couples don't have even close to the same money belief systems. And that's where talking about it ahead of time is really important. And I really oh, I wish there were premarital financial courses for everyone before they got married because that could change so many lives. Not to say that they're not going to get married, but that they can go into the marriage and have much clearer view of how to set things up. You know whether it be the bank accounts, the investing accounts, and talk about, okay, how much should we allocate towards sports equipment and vacations? And the GIST method is really, really powerful because it automatically allows you to live below your means without feeling like you're being hard done by. The key is that they start young though, because to all of a sudden start living expense-wise on only 50% of your income, that's going to be pretty hard for most adults unless they have a lot of disposable income. But if they start doing that as a teenager and from their very first job, they live on 50% and then save 25% for things like houses, their personal house, I mean, not investments, their house, their fridge, their cars, and so forth. And then have their investing 15% or somewhere around there. Again, they can vary it a bit, but the key is that they're dividing it up. And then they're sticking kind of a wedge in so that even if their income goes up by, say, they get a huge, huge raise and they get 40000 more a year or a huge income tax return, they're not going to just go and spend all of that it's going to it, it, the gist method sticks with you no matter what your pay level is and allows you to to achieve your different goals because what it shows when you look at the research about asking people how much more they need to be financially set and happy no matter what the income level whether it's below 50 above 100 or above 500,000 everyone says they would be great if they only had about 30% more and so it, it's not about the numbers it's about what you're doing and we know that but how do we actually help people make what needs to happen happen? It's dividing it up like the GIST method and having it automatic because to save the money at the end of the month after the income comes into the, the checking account, it's not going to happen. For most people, it's too emotional and there's too much power and motivation to buy. That's, that's what the, you know, the vendors are trying to get everyone to do is to buy product.
0: Yeah, there's you know, and and so in the world of gifts, so what I like about that foundation, that platform that you're you're basing it on, you know, give, invest, save, and then the last one, which is spend. So it, it doesn't. That's an important word to add to the platform, which is you know, what have I got to spend? And so there's talks about the present and the future, and I think that's a really important foundation for people to. To tap into and and start to work into their life and their conversations with their kids, so that decisions are being made from that foundation, from that platform. And I love that concept. And 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 of course, you, it's proven to work for people who are listening right now. Because I've had so many sim- well, not the same conversations as, as you, but similar. Given what we do in in our world uh, versus what you do in yours, and and there's lots of overlap. If somebody's listening to this, is there, are there flags? Is, you know, if they, if, you know, if they're listening to this and you would say, these are some things that you should be paying attention to and, and not be stepping over, you know, there could be some flags that people aren't even aware of in, in terms like, do, are you having conversations with your significant other about planning and money, or are they always fights? I guess that would be like, if you're always fighting about money, you know, you have a fundamental issue that you're not dealing with. Is there other things like that, Nancy, that you would share?
1: Yeah, I think arguing, I think the uptightness, like it might not end up in an argument, but just the, the tenseness of it. Or if one person, one partner wants to talk and the other one's like, no, I work hard. I deserve to spend my money the way I want to. And that's that's quite common as well. Uh, there's something now that's unfortunately very common and more and more is being written on it, which is, they call it financial infidelity, which is the sneaking around of spending Uh. and buying things. Um, one of the examples was, uh, a woman who owned, um, I don't know how many hundreds pairs of shoes, but her husband said, you know, please stop buying shoes. Uh, You know, you've got so many, you could never wear them. And so what she started doing was buying them and then scuffing up the bottom. So if if she was wearing a pair and he said, oh, are those new? She would lift up the bottom and show the scuff marks and and, uh, so that was her way of getting away with it. So there's all kinds of things that are occurring now. And whereas if they were aligned on their future and that they wanted to be financially free by 50 and then travel the world, you know, sh- she would hopefully be able to commit to to helping make that happen by not spending on current materialistic things that aren't required. But what that comes back to and, and what a lot of overspending, uh, whether it's, the financial infidelity or not, is really people are looking for the dopamine hit. You know, it's the same as a video game. People are looking for the positive mental charge to the motivation center of their brain and shopping does that. And so we're encouraged by the media to shop when you're sad, shop when you're happy, celebrate, go shopping. And that it's such a damaging message overall because you can celebrate by, you know going for a great walk with someone you love and sharing you know sharing your day and dreaming together you can you can go for a workout you can meditate there's so many different ways you f- can feel good without spending but unfortunately we've been programmed to get oh go out and get that hit of dopamine and um that's that's what's causing a lot of the problems
0: in our you know society. i think you know, even as you're saying that, I know that there's people that are listening to this that are probably feeling a little uncomfortable because at the end of the day, we know the conversations we're avoiding. We know the stories we have. I mean, men in general joke, you know, it's like you say to your wife, is that a brand new top? And she goes, no, this old thing, right? And we joke about that sometimes. And, and it is, you know, in, in, in the right context, it is kind of cute and funny, but if there is the avoidance conversation. And I liked the word financial infidelity. You know, I think you man oh man you know thinking in those con in that context is that's happening a lot in society dopamine we talk about facebook instagram even the social media part of it that's really what that's firing that's where the addiction lives i remember many years ago an epiphany i had i'd I'd gone into uh i don't know a a shopping i don't shop generally but I, i think i went into like the bay or something i had to go buy something and i walked in there and i It was a Sunday and I I was going, man, is there ever a lot of people in here? So I picked up what I needed. I then had a stop at Home Depot or Revy or someplace that I went in there and I walked in there and they had a huge sale on storage bins. And in that moment, I laughed because here with this consumerism, you know, go buy stuff here and here's the storage bins for all the stuff you're buying. And uh, it was a bit of an epiphany many years ago that, uh, you know, that where our society is sometimes going in the world of consumerism. I mean, I like my stuff the same as anybody else, but I've also noticed that as I've gotten a little older and the wealthier I've got, you know, or the greater financial wealth I've achieved, the less I want to buy stuff. That's me. You know, I'm actually at a point in my life where I can afford a lot of things where I go, no, I don't want to insure it. I don't want to polish it. I don't want to get pissed off when somebody dents it. You know, so I have no attachment to things that that way anymore. And it's just an interesting shift that I've observed of myself and friends of, of mine as well that I'm, you know, that really are very wealthy, yet buying stuff is just not their, you know, not what they do now. So it's just interesting. And I just share that. Now in the conversation, I mean, gosh, if we've got parents that can't, even communicate amongst themselves, how do you communicate with the kids? And how, you know, because at that point, they don't even have an awareness around their children. They're either, once again, you know, financial infidelity, lack of knowledge or understanding of finances, different belief systems. And then how do you communicate that with children? Gosh, it seems like such a big hurdle, big challenge, Nancy. So, you know, you're out there. And you're 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 driving this, you know, in your business. And what are you seeing? You know, where are you seeing the wins along the way? What are you What are you noticing as you educate, as you bring these conversations into you know the rooms that you speak at or the programs that you provide or, or in your business? What What are you noticing around that? Are you feeling like you're winning the war sometimes?
1: Oh boy. <laughs> Uh, no, I don't feel like I'm winning the war yet because there's, there's so many people that need help, <laughs> but then the stories that keep me going are the emails that I get that say, this is how your information changed my family's life. And, uh, luckily those stories are really, really powerful ones. I just actually got one last week, which was from a family out East in the U S and they started using the gist method with their little kids. Uh, they were six and eight at the time. And the little girl who was six has just purchased her own uh, computer for school. And they took photographs of the look on her face, like as she saw the computer, as she pulled out her own money to pay for it and then holding it afterwards. And while it's a materialistic item, the achievement that she's accomplished in order to be able to do that, she's doing what less than 1% of the population are doing, which is, you know, young kids buying their own technology. and. Once you've done something like that, I remember buying my first car and I felt like I could do anything. Now, if a parent robs that opportunity from their child repeatedly, the child is going to end up feeling like they can't do anything. And that, you know, I, and I've met because of what I work in and because, you know, people really trust me and share their personal stories with me, like I'm a doctor or something, they'll come up and say what they're, family financial story is and and a lot of people who have been brought up in extremely affluent homes have the challenge of as adults not feeling like they're capable of taking care of their own lives and decisions and and making good income to take care of their own families or themselves because they've never been given the opportunity to do so And one gentleman was saying, you know, he said, I I used to just go shopping all the time to try to make myself happy, and things got more and more expensive, and I wasn't getting any happiness. So eventually, the dopamine hits will run out if that's why you're doing it all the time. So the stories that show kids achieving things, some kids have helped save lives because of the giving money. They've they've realized that they can help others and they've saved enough and had the uh, idea of, okay, this person's in trouble. We can help raise money to help them. One child helped save his teacher by creating a community fund to earn the money. So it's all awareness. And so as parents and children start to create awareness of, okay, the actions that I take today, that those type of actions create my ultimate life because, you know, how you live your day, that's what adds up to your outcome of your life. And so that by breaking it down into such simple measures in, in the storybooks and in, in the steps to success guide, it gives parents and either kids or teens an opportunity to go, okay, this really isn't that complex. If I just do a few things right repeatedly, it's just step-by-step climbing a mountain. It's doing those things over and over habitually in the right direction. And if you make a mistake, don't beat yourself up and say, I'm not good with money. I'm not good at this. I'm not good at that. Go, okay, that wasn't very helpful. That didn't go the way I wanted it to, but Let me try it this way. So it's learning forward. It's learning from mistakes. But unfortunately, when it comes to money, most people, they'll fall into the the defeatist side of things right away, where it's like, that was so stupid. How could I possibly be that stupid? And it, it doesn't have to do with stupidity. It has to do with the physiology of their brain. It's the same with the shopping. You see something, you want it. It's because your brain is telling you you need it because it goes back to caveman days. It was a survival mechanism. Now, no, we don't need those shoes. We, we don't need that car. Our brain is saying we do. But I, if I have the knowledge to say, okay, no, that's the dopamine. That's the uppers. The serotonin, oxytocin comes into it. When you see something you like, oxytocin floods your motivation center. The love drug tells you, oh, I love those shoes or I love that car. But if you have the awareness, and it's one of the messages that I share in all my talks, if you have the awareness to know that that's a physiological chemical effect and say, okay, look, no, I'm totally thinking emotionally. That's all just drugs in my brain. Step back, walk out of the store, put the item on hold if if need be, but walk out of the store and ask yourself, okay, does buying this item fit into my life goals? Is this getting me closer to where I want to go or taking me away? Is it going to put me in debt and move me away from financial freedom? that I want so much. So just awareness of the fact that, no, it's not stupidity. It's called humanity. And, but there is something we can do about it. That's why that advice sleep on it is such a valuable tip because it's actually true. It allows you to go from your emotional revved up mind from your fight or flight state to calm down, think about it, see if it fits in your values and your goals.
0: You know, it's interesting that you bring that up a couple, well, a few years ago, and a couple of young ladies that we knew back then were both finding themselves buying too many clothes and too many shoes and and really having trouble budgeting. And they were a little bit of financial uh, infidelity with their significant others, and, and they're young, and uh, I would say mid-20s at the time. But they partnered as a, you know, two girlfriends, and they put an agreement together, which was when they felt the pull to buy an unnecessary pair of shoes or a, or a pair of shoes that they love, that got to have these shoes or a top. What they did was they agreed to phone each other, have a conversation about it because they knew each other's uh, wardrobe. Both fashion conscious, fashionistas, really cool. But then they would uh, they would have a conversation with each other and they'd question, "Do you really need that for your wardrobe? Really?" And then they would do the next step, which was leave it for five days. 10 days even, I think. And if in five days, you still have a real pull to that piece of uh, of uh, fashion, then certainly you would consider buying it then. But it was, it was a whole bunch of little stumbles or blocks that they put in their way to uh, prevent themselves from overspending. And it worked for them, by the way. And it was a really, I thought it was pretty uh, innovative. I don't know how they came to it, but it, I thought it was good for you. You know, that was it. Given the challenges that they'd faced financially and and the hole that they'd dug for themselves. They dug themselves out of the hole and actually came up uh, on the other side of it. So it's kind of cool.
1: That's a fantastic story. And it's a great, great story because when you declare something verbally and then you make an agreement with somebody else, that takes things to a whole other level.
0: So when you go back to the, you know, the college student that didn't know the difference between a debit card and a credit card, Nancy, do you think that given the years that you've been on this earth and- that what you've seen in terms of progress of money and, and and how much digital currency, I mean, put a check in front of anybody now and they'd have probably challenges writing a check. Cause it's like, you know, it'd be like a rotary phone. We just don't do it anymore. or Very rarely. I mean, corporately we do, but not personally. Do you think there's a detachment that's also causing a problem because of the digital world of finance? Like you're not seeing it. It's just, it, all it is is a number. It's there's no, even physical touch for money that much anymore. I mean, gosh, it doesn't matter what it is. You put it on your debit card for two bucks. If you're that way, I, I still like to handle cash, but lots of people don't. Do you see that as a, a challenge? Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons I use the word catastrophic because if we don't teach our children and young adults how to manage money well and start to understand how their brain is working around this topic, the devastation financially will be much larger and much grander in the years ahead. And this is why. So when you use cash, the insula in your brain is the pain mechanism. And when you use cash and you hand it over, the insula fires. So it's the pain and disgust center, basically. So you feel a little wave uh, of uh, heat, pain, whatever. Your stomach might feel a bit sick if it's a bigger purchase. So that's that's the insula. Now, when you use uh, plastic or your phone or any kind of technology to buy something, that part of your brain does not fire at all. So they have brain scans showing that. So our children are growing up in a world where there is no mental, physical awareness of what's being spent. So it could be $1, it could be $1,000. And that's happening on iPads all the time. The first lawsuit was about six years ago, I think, in England. And it was a grandfather whose grandson, uh, the the credit card of the grandfather was attached to a game uh, in the iPad in a software of of the game. And And the baby did not know that when he was pushing a certain button, it was charging. And so this kind of stuff is happening all the time now. And so you can literally spend thousands of dollars without knowing, and, and that is happening. And, it's, and it's, it can be catastrophic for families. So uh, to answer your question, it's absolutely an issue. And that's one of the reasons I actually still recommend that parents with young children, even teens... Get them to, to handle cash, get them to count it out, use the GIST method. So there is some kind of relationship to what that means. Otherwise, it, it, there's no tangibility. Like kids are very concrete. ATM, there's a joke. ATM to a child means all the money because it just keeps <laughs> shooting out, right? Yeah, yeah. So they have no idea that you had to work for that money.
0: So there's, you know, it's it, it's interesting that. You know, what I love about this conversation, I mean, I love everything about this conversation, but I what I really am drawn to or see is you know, the the fact that there is a science to all of this. The research that you've done, but it is a science. This isn't even opinion. I mean you've you've formed your opinions based on research and, and science, but this isn't anecdotal information. These are this is really truly the research and the science and how we think and how our brain fires and and all of the things that are happening the chemical reactions in our heads and in our bodies and what we're feeling around it and a disconnect from reality really that is draw, is caused a little bit by just the digitization of money and what that what that really represents i've talked to uh, more than a couple of parents you know that talk about the games the kids are playing and now they have to buy i don't know i i don't i really don't know i'm just going by the stories that there's tokens that they can buy to extend the game and credit cards are attached to that. And the kids are, you know, allowed to actually spend, let's say $20 to be able to advance the game. You know, they actually have a budget for it, but some kids get into the game. And the next thing you know, the, the, the parents are experiencing a 50 or a hundred dollar charge on a credit card for their children to complete this game off of whatever tablet or computer they're playing for it. And, And it's, it's just such a big shift from, and that's only been really in the past, what, five, seven years. I don't know. What is the time frame. It's, it's happening very quickly.
1: Yes. They, there, there has been a couple of big um, research papers and articles written in psychology today and so forth. And a couple of the top researchers say that 2012 was really the year where the tipping point occurred in that over 50% of young people had, uh, access daily and for long hours on technology. So any kids that were sort of four or five around, or even some parents had their kids on iPads at two. So really any children that, that were young in 2012, they're completely, their whole life is really all, all used to those types of games and that type of technology situation.
0: Tell me something, Nancy, you know, something that you mentioned earlier that was uh, talking about dopamine and talking about the pressure. I mean, where does peer pressure fall into this? What does that drive based on the research or the science? And, and to me, I look at it and I'm, I, I ask the question. I'm, I'm pretty simple in my thinking. I go, how much of this is just ego-driven? But given what you're saying, I'm wondering, is, is the ego that drives this also based on whatever reaction is happening in our brain that is supporting it by whatever chemical our body's producing? Do you have that information? Is that something that showed up for you in your research? Or is is ego really just a standalone kind of thing
1: well yeah that's a that's a really interesting question and question and, and ego we have to remember that the ego is not just with the teens but it's also with the parents
0: no of course and that's what i'm talking and, about. I'm not talking about teens yeah. in this case i'm 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 talking just society in general and those that are driven to buy the best of or the latest of or the most shiny of whatever that con- because what you talked about is in that conversation was about the dopamine hit and, and, and some other language you use that has slipped my mind in this moment. But ultimately what it led me to was the question of how much is this is just when we hear about what we would call ego driven decisions, buying decisions, because it's, it's gotta be shinier. It's gotta be better than the neighbors. I'm just curious about it. Is there research behind it that we can look at it and say, is this an ego buy? Is this a dopamine hit? Is this, what's driving this?
1: Well, that that's so multifactorial for yeah. sure. Um, very much, you know, if if somebody wants to be better than someone else, that can be what is the motivator. So that that's what's driving their motivation center by dopamine. But one of the other big things that's really involved is is oxytocin because that's that's the bonding. The, the, you know, that's the bonding drug. And so if we want to feel part of a group, which is very important to teen, well, actually not just teens, right? Everybody's trying to, or a lot of people are trying to keep up with the Jones more and more people in today's world are realizing, you know what? Minimalism is actually a really good thing because it makes you value what you have more. It simplifies your life. It simplifies your mind. There isn't the chaos and the clutter to take care of all the belongings, like you were mentioning earlier. So I would say oxytocin is also really important in that. But um, ego, ego comes from so many things, because it, uh, so much of it does come from early childhood. And then if you're feeling out of place, uh, if you're the odd one out as a preteen or teen, that can create a whole other series of uh, fear mechanisms. So if you've got the fear side coming in, that's a totally different part of the brain that can motivate you very powerfully and and literally blind you to making good decisions. So that, that side of it, the cortisol, the stress, that's where a a lot of ego decisions are made too. And in my, in as far as I know, the fear is a huge motivator.
0: It is, you know, I uh, recently had a uh, Richard Dolan on the podcast and we talked about fear and pain. And, you know, the the motivation that fear and pain is, and sometimes it's the fear of the pain that, you know, inspires us to to do something differently. And uh, so it is, the point of it all is that for people listening in is that it's something you need to pay attention to, you educate yourself on, not ignore, and actually bust through some maybe uncomfortable conversations with your significant other in all of this. Now, what is the, I mean, because really that, it stems from the parents because you're trying to get to the kids and help them educate. But if your kids, if your parents aren't, if they're not clear on it, how do they even communicate with the children around it? So it's a, it's a a big awareness for everybody to take on because we, uh, had you out for uh, a couple, what was it? Three, three or four, two or three different events that we did with the kids.
1: Yeah, we did Vancouver, Edmonton, and Toronto.
0: Right, and that was at the Acre event. I mean, the feedback was, as you know, was you know spectacular. And and you know the challenge that we faced, people wanted to carry on. So if you're listening and you wonder why the heck they didn't, is just we couldn't find a methodology, a way to do it in a in a real, I guess, pragmatic and and functional way, some way to make it work. And we're still continuing to work on that. And and uh, we're going to have some ideas around that afterwards. But one of the comments that I often got back from parents of the kids who attended Nancy was they actually the parents were pretty good but they're going you know this is it's like finally my kid can hear it my child can hear this conversation and they you know they couldn't hear it from me because it was just even as a seven year old or an eight year old it's like yeah yeah mom and dad you know it's like they can't hear it Do do you run into that a lot?
1: All the time. (laughs) It was very funny. Last June, I was in New York, uh, one Saturday speaking to a group of millennial children. So they were most of them were in their early 20s. And I had been asked by the, the president of the financial company to come in and talk to his high net worth clients, children, and the clients themselves are also sitting in the room. And so I wrote the talk directly to the millennials and really let them know how urgent it is for them to start to pay attention to this and and start to create their habits and some of the things they can do. So I, you know, I I create that urgency right up front so that they want to pay attention because they kind of know their lives are on the line. And um, as I went through the talk, I just had these grinning parents in the background smiling and nodding the whole time because, of course, a lot of them had been trying probably pretty hard to get through to their kids for years. But hearing it from an objective resource is is a whole different ballgame, that's for sure. So, yes, I hear that quite commonly. And I go through it myself time sometimes, too, I have to admit, of course.
0: Now, yeah, so with your own children, you know, is this a conversation that, tell me about I mean, you worked at it, and given your background and and what you do, and and where your children are involved to the degree they are, is money a conversation or the handling of money? I don't, I don't want to make it. I want to make it. Is it an ongoing conversation with your kids? Do you make it managing their money? It's like eating well. It's like getting exercise. Is it is it an ongoing conversation with your kids even this many years later? because they're obviously now older and. They've been around this for some time, but even at that, are you always checking in with them?
1: Oh, it's, it, it is continuous because life is always changing and the goals and the desires are always changing. So, you know, whether it's just getting into mountain biking or saving for the first car, uh, dealing with cell phone damage and breakage, um, there's there's always things going on in life that that require attention. And whether or not we want to think of it as involving money, well, it certainly it is. And so how do you deal with that? So, as we talk about, you know, Tasha saving for her first car. We talk about okay, well, there's it's also really important to be aware you have to save for insurance and gas and what's that gonna cost. And uh, you know, used cars can be a really good deal because of driving off the lot, you lose so much in depreciation immediately in a brand new car. So, yes, it's it's a continuous conversation because they're they're becoming young adults now and to prepare them from, for independent adulthood uh, they, you know, the conversations really need to occur. It's very different from wanting to buy plastic toys when they're five years old or something, which, you know, Max did right with his first money when he was four and a half and he bought it at the dollar store and the little car broke on the way home, driving home. It didn't even make it home because it was so cheap. So he knew not to buy toys at the dollar store anymore. So it was a big learning lesson, right? So yeah, it's continuous part of life because we do purchase things, whether it's food or other things virtually, you know, almost every day.
0: You know, you, uh, you talked about broken cell phone. I mean, gosh, think about how that all these, that's a conversation that wouldn't have happened. Not that many years ago is these are all new challenges that our kids are facing as well. You know, one of the things I'm picking up on all of this, Nancy, and even just beyond what you just said, you know, the first a flag for me if if i was sharing something with listeners was that if you're not having true money conversations with your kids on a regular basis that in itself is a flag it should be not constantly them asking for money but it should be definitely a pragmatic approach to how that money got to be what does it mean to them it's got to be a whole a more a much more holistic conversation then, you know, give me money for a sandwich or give me money for a new cell phone or whatever that might be that, you know, kids put demands on parents on a regular basis. I want to go back, you know, this is totally off track, but with, you know, I always like to know where my guests came from, like in terms of your own upbringing, what did you learn about money? I mean, you know, we kind of entered the conversation when you were about 18 years old, where were you born and raised?
1: I was born and raised in Toronto, and my dad uh, was a was a small business owner, and so I I started I got an allowance at seven years old and uh, it was seven dollars, <laughs> and so I started managing my money at seven, and then I started working for him at fourteen. My first job outside the family I was managing one of his stores because he had two stores in one block so I I managed the satellite store <laughs> and then I started out working at Dairy Queen at 16 and as a gymnastics coach at 16 also
0: So you come by your entrepreneurism quite honest uh, honestly right your dad was you know business owner and entrepreneur and so you have a background in that
1: Yes and in fact very interestingly uh, the economy changed pretty significantly with um, manufacturing when I was 16. And so he sold very high end products, uh, brass lamps, the emerald glass shades, he was in the lighting industry, he did all the wiring for Waterford crystal and so forth. So he dealt with very good quality products. And when I was in high school, I, um, I, I watched what he went through and struggled through when match, manufacturing be, became this mass production of producing really cheap products uh, and in lighting in many, many different industries as well, but certainly in lighting. And so that was very challenging for him. And so subconsciously, I thought to myself, I'm going to make sure I work for a really big company. If I work for a company, it's going to be a really big company to make sure it's secure. Right. So a little bit of false thinking. We all, we all develop conclusions from different points of life. Big companies aren't secure either. We all know of Kodak, right? um, Times change, but that was my thinking as a 16 year old. So interesting little side
0: note. (laughs) Now, how were your parents around money for you? Was it, were they, do you recall at a time where they, were they open in conversation with money as, as a couple that you recall and were they pretty conversational with you about money and supporting and teaching you around money when you were growing up as well, Nancy, do you think?
1: I don't, I don't recall us talking about it a lot. It was a pretty busy household because I had four older brothers or three older brothers. There was four of us. So there was a lot of running around and and I was in a lot of sports, as I mentioned, and and music and so forth. So, you know, we weren't sort of sitting around talking about it, but it wasn't hush, hush either. Uh, We were very frugal, uh, lived a good, modest life. I knew it was important to save for the future. They were both depression children, so they were not about to go out and spend a lot of money on anything that that wasn't necessary. They believed in quality, but never on, on waste. And that's something I've always communicated with my kids too, in that it, it doesn't matter how much wealth we ever build in our lives, we will not waste because it's not good for our heart and our mind, and it's not good for our environment.
0: You know, we talk a lot about money, and I don't want to step over some of the things that you pointed out around our life and our lifestyle and our general happiness is money is a way to provide for a lifestyle, but it isn't what drives our happiness or our overall satisfaction. And people get attached to that, I think. And those are lessons that I think we all know them. It's getting connected to it and reconnected to it sometimes in the realization. And and as much as we don't want to admit it, we, I think that most realize that it isn't money that makes you happy. It really, really isn't because of course, you know, we talk about it or we've, we've had many, I've had many conversations with, you know, people around what the money provides a cool life, but it's not what makes them happy. The relationships that they have and the, their health and all of the things that, have meaning memories for sure, as opposed to the material things. And those can be created without money. So it's not that money is a bad thing. And that's not what we're saying here at all, but how we manage it, how we look at our, our, and view the world around money, I think is just so important to shift. And what are we doing as a culture and as a society in supporting our kids as they go into the future? These are changing times, you know, you and I both came or, or in that boomer world, we came from parents that are came from a, a tough time, you know, at raising four children. And and I was the same way. I actually had three sisters and I was the brother. So I have a, <laughs> a slightly different relatedness, but four kids. But the point is, is that, you know, these are times that we as parents, if you want responsibility around supporting our children, I think the financial education of our children is more important today than it even was with us. And it was important to us, but gosh, with the shift of what we talk about digital currency and now blockchain and cryptocurrencies and the speed of light and and devices called, you know, smartphones and iPads and all of the things that go along, there is a detachment around dollars and cents. And I think as parents, we have to be responsible for that
1: absolutely the the increased speed and the decreased emotion is is like an equation that that can lead to serious consequences positive or negative much more quickly and with the lack of knowledge it can lead to the negative consequences more commonly and that's that's why this information is so urgently needed
0: so as we start to wind the show down uh, nancy is there any is there is, a, is there a message is there a, a statement that you find yourself often making to parents that you would make to the listeners on the show i'm once again i'm not trying to put you on the spot but is there something that you would want to make sure that people on this podcast heard from you
1: Absolutely. I I believe it's to take action, you know, and to realize that this, this is going to make a huge difference in your children's life. So don't leave it no matter what their age. If you're not consciously having conversations about real life stuff, do it now. I mean, it doesn't have to be an hour, (laughs) you know, (laughs) lecture. It can be driving by the gas station and, and noticing that the gas prices went up or noticing that they went down. And You know, letting letting your kids pay the tip at the restaurant. Don't don't calculate it out uh, on the machine. Let them calculate it first. Say the bill's fifty dollars. Okay, you know, I want to leave a ten percent tip. Well, that's kind of low. Let's say twenty percent tip. Um, What's that going to be? And let them answer. The gifts method will help them learn how to divide their money and learn their basis of percentages, and that again helps them learn interest rates and so forth, so they can have important conversations when they're older. But just Start. That's really the critical thing is that because our world is moving so much faster and because this is not being taught in schools comprehensively, it absolutely is up to the parent. We're the most influential teacher, and this is not a topic that can be left until they're 25 years old. It it, it really has to start young. So just just begin. And if they have questions or looking for resources, they can come to my website. I'll I'll help them. There's a lot of free downloads as well. just get started. That is absolutely essential.
0: You know, this goes back to whatever the quote is, like if, if somebody's going to butcher a quote, it's going to be me, but it, it, it is like, give a man a fish and he eats for a day and teach a man to fish and he eats for a lifetime. And that's really what we're talking is, was that pretty close Nancy? That was right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. So this really is that conversation with our children and, you know, and, and that also changes for generations ahead if listeners are, they themselves struggling, if you're going to change that pattern, if you're going to change that family cycle, it really is up to you to change the cycle. And it starts first with you, then with your children so that then your children's children can go on. And that's really what some of the legacy that you can leave for your family. And uh, I think it's just such an important conversation. And I I really appreciate you being on the show today to do that. Now, you're not off the hook yet, by the way, Nancy, Um, just so you know, a couple of things is what website do you want people to go to if they want to hear oh, more yes. about the well away? Is it, what is that website that you want them to go to?
1: It is just like you say, the well away. So dot Y.com. The well
0: Great. And that'll be posted in the notes as well. So uh, as I uh, start to let you go, there is a, I, I do some rapid fire questions just to have some fun as we uh, exit the show. So rapid fire, are you ready for this? I think so. Oh, they're easy. You'll <laughs> love it. So it could be your own book by the way, but what's a book that you're reading that you you know that or that you've read or what is a book that you gift on an ongoing basis favorite?
1: Ooh, that's a tough one. I've read a lot of good ones this year. Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself by Joe Dispenza.
0: Cool. What's your favorite swear word? <laughs> Shit, shit. Got it. (laughs) That's pretty tame. I know I
1: don't swear much.
0: (laughs) Good for you. Um, Oh, you know why
1: I'll (laughs) tell you why we don't swear much. Because we I said that once as a teenager, this cookie jar fell on my head off the fridge. And I said that word and my parents were so appalled that um yeah we i had to if anytime i swore i had to put money in the jar (laughs) so it broke my habit very quickly
0: (laughs) so there okay so we're starting to get in see right away i get oh a little picture of of nancy growing up and her money stuff okay got it if you weren't doing this what other profession might you want to try or attempt
1: i still love sports medicine i still consult in sport medicine uh love helping people be able to get back and be active and love their life if I wasn't doing either that or the financial life skills, well, I wish I had the talent of an artist, but I, I don't. I would not be able to make a living, but I would love to have been given the gifts of of singing and, and painting for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you, I wish I was given that gift. I, I mean, I've often thought, wouldn't it be great to be able to play music? And uh, I can barely play the radio, so that's definitely <laughs> off the charts for me. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you get to the gates?
1: Thank you for doing what you were supposed to do.
0: Awesome. On a scale of one to ten, how weird do you think you are?
1: (laughs) How weird. Wow. Oh, I know I'm very cerebral, that's for sure. Um, Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm not a super common type person in the sense of God, a real severely introverted side and yet very friendly and extroverted uh how weird 10 why not 10 why not 10 Interesting.
0: <laughs> room desk or your car what do you clean first
1: mm, desk or car room here clear, clear the clutter
0: uh, do you have a f- oh, i
1: try to keep them all fairly clean i like my car clean too for sure
0: nice what uh do you have a favorite tune
1: favorite tune um well the one that just jumped into my head when you said that is life as a highway because i used to listen to that all the time driving up to whistler from vancouver when i lived in vancouver in the 90s and went skiing in whistler oh but
0: that's such a great song do you have a favorite movie
1: oh interesting i think it would still have to be sound of music from my childhood
0: wow what are you grateful for
1: oh so much mostly family uh surviving the hard times um and all the all the wonderful resources that helped me through that being able to learn and being free like just the fact that we live in this country and we can do what interests us uh and and being able to walk very much
0: Nancy Phillips I am so grateful to have had you on the show and uh you know I'm I'm grateful for my life for my health always and for my wife and my family and uh thank you so much i think the message that you shared today is so powerful and so important for people to pay attention to and dig into and and i'm looking forward to uh as we we pre-show everybody we you know nancy and i had a little bit of a conversation about how we can start to fold this work into what we do as an organization and uh My commitment is to come up with some way to do that because I still believe it's so incredibly important. If we're going to change lives and change the world, this is a great place to start. So Nancy, once again, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much, Patrick. It was an absolute pleasure.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others, share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo@raincanada.com. That's CEO at reinCada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. and until next time, Patrick O.